Chapter Two of Some Everyday Folk and Dawn by Miles Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At Clay's. The long hot days gave place to cooler and shorter, and there was none left of the beautiful fruit peaches, apricots, figs, plums, nectarines, grapes, and melons, which, for want of a market, had rotted ankle-deep in some parts of the fertile old valley of Nunoon, ere I received a communication from Mrs. Clay. "'If you think it worth your while, you can investigate my place now. All the summer weather folk has gone. I would only take one or two nice people now that would live with us in our own plain way, and who would be company for the family.' so i could not undertake to give you a separate parlour and table and carry on that way but if you like to call and see me please yourself accordingly i lost no time in once more patronising the town busman and being his only patron that day he rattled me past the tin kangaroo weathercocks the battered corner pub and its colleague a few doors on and entering the principal street where jiminy's hotel filled the view turned to the right across fertile flats held in tenure by patient Chinese gardeners. Being a region of quick growth, it was of correspondingly rapid decay, and the season of summer fruits had been entirely superseded by autumn flowers. The Vale of Melons was now a valley of chrysanthemums, and with a little specialisation in this branch of horticulture, could easily have out-chrysanthemumed Japan. Without any care or cultivation, they filled the little gardens on every side, Children of all sizes were to be seen with bunches of them, while discarded blossoms lay in the streets, after the fashion of the superabundant melons and orchard fruits during their season. About a mile from the station, we halted before a ramshackle old two-storey house that was covered by roses and hidden among orange and fig trees. The approach led through an irregular plantation of cedar and pepper trees, pomegranates and other shrubs, and masses of chrysanthemums and cosmos that flourished in every available space. The friendly busman directed me to a gable sheltered by a yellow jasmine tree, where I tapped on the door with my knuckle. Footsteps approached on the inside, and after some thumping and kicking on its panels, it was burst open by a nimble old lady in immaculate gown, with carefully adjusted collar and wavy hair combed back in a tidy knot, and with still a dark shade in it. "'Them blessed white ants!' she exclaimed. "'They've very near got the place eat down, "'so that you have to make a fool of yourself opening the door, "'and that blessed feller I sent for hasn't come to do em up yet. "'But some people!' "'She finished so exasperatedly "'that I felt impelled to state my name and business without delay, "'and with a prim, indeed, "'she led the way across a narrow linoleumed hall, "'so beeswaxed that one had to stump along, carefully erect.' She invited me to a chair in a stiff room, and began. I've only got another lady in the place now, and if you come you'll have to eat with the family. I considered this an attraction. And there'll be no fussing over you and pampering you, for I'm not reduced to keeping boarders out of necessity. They ain't all I've got to depend on, she said, with a fiery glance from her choleric blue-grey eyes. Certainly not. I'm sure of that by your style, Mrs. Clay. But of course I like to make a little. This federal tariff has rose the price of living considerable, she said, softening somewhat as we now sat down on the formidable and well-dusted seats. But I believe you are something of an invalid. Unfortunately, yes. Well, this ain't no private hospital, and never pretended to be. Sick people is a lot of trouble pottering and fussing around with. I couldn't, 
for the sake of my granddaughter, give her a lot of extra work that would mean nothing. This might have sounded hard, but with some people their very austerity bespeaks a tenderness of heart. They affect it as a shield or guard against a softness that leaves them the too easy prey of a self-seeking community, and such I judged Mrs. Clay. Her stiffness, like that of the echidna, was a spiky covering protecting the most gentle and estimable of dispositions. My ill health is the thought to worry no one but myself. I need no dieting or waiting upon. It is merely a heart trouble, and should it happen to finish me in your house, I will leave ample compensation and will pay my board and lodging weekly in advance. I ain't a money-grubber, she hastened to assure me. I was only explaining to you. I'm only explaining too, I said with a smile, and having arrived at this understanding of mutual straight going, she intimated that I could inspect a room I might have. In addition to a couple of detached buildings composed of rooms, which during the summer were given to boarders, there were a few apartments in the main residence which were also delivered to this business, and I was conducted to where three, in an uneven gable, faced west and fronted the river. This is my granddaughter Dawn's, and this one is empty, and this one is took by a young party for the winter, said the old dame. I selected the middle room, as it gave promise of being companionable with those on either hand occupied, and its window commanded an attractive view. A tangled old garden opened on a steep descent to the quiet river, edged with willows and garnished by a great row of red and blue boats, rocking almost imperceptibly in the even flow while a huge placard advertised their business. Best boats on the river to be hired here, Mrs. Martha Clay. To the right was an imposing bridge, and on the other side of the water, right at the foot of the great range, which in the early days had remained so long impassable, lay the quiet old settlement of Kangaroo. If you think that room will do, you are welcome to it, continued Mrs. Clay. Seventeen and six a week without washing, a pound with, I agreed to the with-washing terms, so the affable Jehu hauled in what luggage I had brought, and at last I was installed at Clay's. The only thing wanting to complete the incident was the advent of dawn, but she was nowhere to be seen. As it was only eleven in the morning, I sat in my room and waited for her and a cup of tea, but neither were forthcoming. In her own words, Mrs. Clay was never giving to running after people and licking their boots. Eventually, having grown weary of waiting for dawn and luncheon and other things, I went out on a tour of inspection. First find was a tall, dashing girl of twenty-four, or thereabouts, dusting the big, heavily encumbered parlour into which my room opened. "'Good morning,' heartily said she. "'Good morning. Are you dawn?' inquired I. "'Dawn?' no but you might well ask for it's nothing but dawn and her doings and sayings and good looks here you'd think there was no other girl in noonan she won't take it as any compliment to be taken for me well she must be something superlative if it would not be a compliment to be taken for you oh me i'm only carry the lady help general slavery like earning my living only that i eat with the family and not in the kitchen in the summer they hire a cook and others, but in the winter there are only me and Dawn and the old woman, said this frank and communicative individual in the frank and communicative manner characteristic of the Clay household. Proceeding from this encounter, 
I went out the back way, past more gardens and irregular enclosures, where under wide-spreading cedar trees I found a boy at the hobbledy-hoy age chopping wood in a desultory fashion, as though to get rid of time, rather than to enlarge the stack of short sticks, which were the most imperative object. Driving his axe in tight and holding on to it as a sort of balance, he leant back, affected a passage in his nostrils, and after having regarded me with a leisurely and straightforward squint, observed, "'I reckon you're the new boarder.' "'I reckon so. I reckon you belong to this place.' "'Yes, Mrs. Clay. She's my grandma.' "'Is that your grandfather?' I inquired, pointing to the old man who had travelled with me on the day of my first visit to the town, and now supporting an outhouse doorpost, while a young man, with whom he talked, leant against the tailboard of a cart, advertising that he was the first-class butcher of kangaroo, and had several other unsurpassable virtues in the meat trade. "'No, he ain't my grandfather. Thank goodness he's only my uncle. That's plenty for me.' "'Aren't you fond of him?' "'I ain't dying of love for him, I promise you. Old crawler, he reckons he's the boss. But sometimes I get home on him, in a way that a sort of illustrates to his intelligence that he ain't. Ask Dawn. She's the one who'll give you the straight tip regarding him. Where is Dawn? Oh, Dawn's in the kitchen. She and Carrie does the cookin' week about when the house ain't full. Grandma makes them do that. It saves rows about it not being fair. You won't catch sight of Dawn till dinner. She'll want to get herself up a bit, you being new. She always does for a fresh person, but she soon gets tired of it. And you? Are you going to get yourself up because I'm new? Not much. Boys ain't that way so much as the women, he said, and the grin we exchanged was the gem of a friendship that ripened as our acquaintance progressed. I intended to settle down to the enjoyment afforded by my sense of humour. I had preserved it intact as a private personal accomplishment. On the stage, having steered clear of comedy and confined myself to tragedy, it had never been cheapened and made nauseous by sham and machine representations indigenous to the hated footlights, and was an untapped preserve to be drawn upon now. So I was not to see Dawn till the midday dinner. She was to appear last, like the star at a concert. A star she verily was, when eventually she came before me, carrying a well-baked roast on an old-fashioned dish. Her lovely face was scarlet from hurry in the fire. Her bright hair gleamed in coquettish rolls, and a loose sleeve displayed a round and dimpled forearm, a fitting continuance of the taper fingers grasping the chief dish of the wholesome and liberal menu she had prepared. Old Uncle Jake took the carver's place, but Grandma Clay sat at his left elbow and instructed him what to do. He handed the helpings to her, and she supplemented each with some of all the vegetables irrespective of the wishes of the consumers to whom they were handed in a business-like method. The puddings were distributed on the same principle, Grandma even putting milk and sugar on the plates as for children, and further she talked in a choleric way, as though the children were in bad grace owing to some misdemeanour. But that was merely one of her mannerisms, as that of others is to smile and be sweet while they inwardly fume. Excepting this, the unimpressive old smudges hung above the mantel, and probably standing for some family progenitors, gazed out of their caricatured eyes on an uneventful meal. Conversation was choppy and of the personal order, not interesting to a stranger to those mentioned, 
I made a few duty remarks to Uncle Jake, which he received with suspicion, so I left him in peace to suck his teeth and look like a sleepy lizard, while I counted the queer and inartistic old vases, crowded in plum and corresponding pears on the shelf over the fireplace. Miss Flip, the other boarder, was in every respect a contrast to me, being small, young, and dressed with elaboration in a flimsy style, which, off the stage, I have always scorned. Her wrists were laden with bangles, her fingers with rings, and her golden hair piled high in the most exaggerated of the exaggerated pompadour styles in vogue. Her appetite was indifferent. The expression of her eyes bespoke either ill-health or dissipation, and she was very abstracted, or as Mrs. Clay put it, she acts like she had something on her mind. Maybe she's lovesick for someone she can't catch, and she's been sent up here to forget. This was after Miss Flip had retreated to her room, and Carrie continued the subject as she cleared the table. She says she's an orphan, reared by a rich uncle. She's always blowing about him and how fond he is of her. She's just recovered from an operation, and has come up here to get strong. That's why she does nothing. So she says. Only poke about and read novels, and make herself new hats and blouses. But I think she'd be lazy without any operation. She'd want another to put some go in her. She'd require inoculating with a little of yours, said I, watching with what enviable vigour the girl's work sped before her as though afraid. I also retired to my room for a rest, intending to come out and pave the way for friendship with Dawn by and by for I quickly perceived she was not the character to go out of her way to make the first overture. Sometime after, when strolling around in an unwanted fashion, I was pleased to again counter my friend Andrew. Evidently he had been sent to clean out the fowl-houses, for a wheelbarrow half full of manure stood at the door of a wire-netted shed, and in the middle of this task, he had sought diversion by shooting rats from among the straw in a big old barn, where a great heap of unused hay made them a harbour. In this warm valley, carpeted in the irrepressible couch-grass, there was no lack of fodder that season, and even the lanes and byways would have served as fattening paddocks. Andrew leant upon his gun, and having delivered himself of certain statistics in rat mortality, and exhibiting some specimens by the tail, he began a conversation. "'Say, what did you think of Miss Thingamabob? Miss Flip, I mean?' "'I didn't bother thinking anything at all about her.' Andrew looked interrogatively at me and broke into a grin. "'Well, I reckon she's the silliest goat I ever came across. She came out to me and asked did I think she looked pretty, as her uncle is coming up tonight, and if she looks nice, he'll give her a present or something. I reckon she'd have to look not such a mad-headed rabbit before I'd give her anything but some advice to bag her head. And he must be a different uncle to Uncle Jake. I reckon he wouldn't give you nothing if you had on two heads at once. Here's Larry Whitcomb coming back from his rounds, and he promised me a bit of meat for whiskey. Here, whiskey, whiskey, he roared, and a small canine pet that had been hunting rats desisted from the fray and ran with his master. I also walked with him this without exception, even in slum scenes on the stage, being the dirtiest escort I ever had had. His face was grimed, his shirt like an engine rag, and his trousers dusty, while from a hole in the seat thereof fluttered a flag of garment. Such an ingratiatingly wholesome blunderbuss of a boy. "'Here you, Larry. 
he yelled. You promise me. Come on, whisky. Why, ain't he a bosker? he enthusiastically exclaimed, as the hideously unprepossessing little mongrel stood on his hind legs and yelped in excited begging. Hello, Andrew. Don't bust. Who's that you had with you? I had turned a corner. A new boarder, I suppose. Rather an old piece. Yes, said Andrew. Her hair is a little white, but she ain't sour and stuck up. A chance for you to hang your hat up, Jake, said Larry. No, thanks. I'm cautious of them, old maids. If you say a pleasant word to em, they can't be shook off. I might have you up for a breach of promise like with Tom Dunstan. I suppose there is a danger you being so fascinating, chuckled the butcher as I went inside, with a premonition that should it come to taking sides in the clay household, if avoidable, I would not be on Uncle Jake's. Who is Uncle Jake? said Carrie in response to my inquiry as she prepared four o'clock tea. He's Uncle Jake, that's what he is, and enough for me too, that he is. The old swab wants hanging up by the beard. Yes, but what place does he hold in the house? Place? That of walking around, poking his nose in everywhere, and growling about things that don't concern him. Mrs. Clay keeps him, gives him fifteen shillings a week, because he's her brother, and you think he'd owned everything. If you want to know what he is, he's a terribly bad example to Andrew. He's the greatest, clumsiest, lumbering, dirty lump. Oh, you should see his clothes, what they are like to wash, and the only way to keep him clean would be to stuff him in a glass case. But for all that, he's a very fair kid. You can't expect much of boys, you know, and have to be thankful for any good points at all. Oh, Lord, she here exclaimed, looking out a window, where along a path through the orchard she descried approaching a fine buxom dame in a fashionably cut dress. Here's Mrs. Bray in full sail. I suppose she saw the busman leaving you here today, and her curiosity couldn't stand any longer without coming on a tour of inspection. Who is Mrs. Bray? She won't let you overlook who she is, and what she owns, and what she done. You'll soon hear it. She's the most inquisitive blowhard I ever came across. Dawn now appeared and invited me to afternoon tea, which was a friendly and hospitable meal spread on a big table on the back veranda so enclosed by creepers and pot-plants and little awnings leading in various directions as to be in reality more of a vestibule mrs bray hove into near view and took up a seat beside a bank of lovely maidenhair fern how are you living she asked grandma clay as she complacently shook hands nice cool weather now and not so many beastly mosquitoes by jove did you know about the skeeters here inquired andrew of me they're big enough to ride bikes and weigh a pound. You wait till you hear em singin' Sankey's hymns tonight. If I were you, I'd hold my tongue and not draw attention to my dirtiness, said Dawn. It's a wonder a garden doesn't sprout upon you. I was then introduced to Mrs. Bray, who acknowledged me genially, and seemed so flourishing and was so complacent regarding the fact that it did one good to look at her. After addressing a few remarks to me, she had to move, for the trimming of her hat caught in the cage of a parakeet and she took another seat in the shelter of a tree-fern near Uncle Jake. "'You have some lovely pet birds,' I remarked, by way of making myself agreeable to Grandma Clay. "'The infernal old nuisances,' she said irascibly. "'I wish they'd die. Andrew calls them his, but they'd starve only for me. I'm always saying I'll have no more pets, and still they're brought here. 
Some day, when he has a home of his own and people plague him, he'll know what it is. On the other side of the veranda, above Uncle Jake, stretched a passion vine, where a thick row of belated fruit hung like pretty pale green eggs, and evil entering Andrew's mind, he remarked to me, "'Wouldn't it be just Bosker if one of them fell on his old nut?' On going out, he returned with a pair of orange clippers. "'Where's Carrie got to?' asked Grandma. "'I saw her out there doing a mash with Larry Whitcomb,' said Andrew. "'Now, do you think there'll be anything in that?' interestedly asked Mrs. Bray. "'I suppose she'd be glad to catch anything for a home of her own. "'Well, it's to be hoped the home she'd catch with him "'would be better than some of the meat we've caught from him lately. "'It was tough as old boots,' put in Dawn. "'At this point Andrew succeeded in disturbing Uncle Jake. "'Succeeded beyond expectation.' Uncle Jake had just sucked his fuzzy possum-grey moustache in the noisy manner peculiar to him, and was raising his tea again when he was struck by the passion-fruit, causing him to let fall the cup. "'Just like you, on the clean boards. Carrie will be pleased. I'm glad it's not my week in the house,' said Dawn. What Uncle Jake said is unfit for insertion in a record so respectable as this intended to be, and Grandma seemed to grow too agitated for verbal utterance but her facial expression was very fiery indeed as Andrew and Uncle Jake withdrew and settled their little score in a manner unknown to the company. "'Well, it's an ill wind that don't blow nobody no good, and though there's a cup broke it's got us rid of the men, and there's never no talking in comfort where they are,' remarked Mrs. Bray, who had a facility for constructing sentences containing several negatives. Two, we learn in syntax, have the effect of an affirmative, but there being no reference to a repletion, only that her utterances were unmistakably plain, Mrs. Bray might have reduced one to wondering the purport of her remarks. "'Did you hear the latest?' she said, laughing boisterously. "'You don't know the people yet,' she continued, turning to me. "'Half of them want scolding.' Here she burst into a full flood of gossip regarding the misconduct of the leading residents, but honest and straightforward though her communications were, I cannot include them here, for this is a story for respectable folk, and a transcript of the straight talk of the most respectable folk would be altogether out of the question. I must confine myself to the statement that Mrs. Bray had found few beyond reproach, and the latest, as she termed it, concerned one Dr. Tinker, whose wife, known colloquially as the old Tinkress, had recently administered a public horse-whipping to a young lady whom the doctor had too ardently admired. Mrs. Bray had only just unearthed the facts that day, and was overwhelmingly interested in them. "'I tell you what ought to be done with some people,' said Grandma, when Mrs. Bray halted for breath. "'There's no respectability like there used to be in my young days. In Gulgul, that's where I was read, the people used to take up anything that wasn't straight. There was a woman there. She and her husband lived happy and respectable, with no notion of anything wrong, till a fella, a blessed Fella, Grandma waxed fierce, that was only sellin' things and making a living out of honest folk, come to town and turned her head. I won't say, but he was a fine-looking man, had a grand flowin' beard. Grandma spread her hands out on her chest. Must have been lovely with a beard, especially if it was like Uncle Jake's, interposed Dawn. How dare you, miss? Beards is a natural adornment gave to man by God, and it's an unnatural notion to carve them off. "'Some of them do want adorning, I'll admit,' said Dawn. "'He was a good-looking man,' 
persisted Grandma. Must have been with a beard, scornfully contended the irrepressible Dawn. She must be smitten on some of these clean-faced articles, said Mrs. Bray with a laugh, which affected the collapse of Dawn. Hold your tongue, miss. Surely I can speak in me own house, continued Grandma, and he could sing and play and that sort of thing. At any rate, this woman was terribly gone on him, and her husband was heartbroke, and they always lived so happy till then that the people of the town took it up. They went to the sergeant and told him what they was going to do, and he was in such sympathy with them that he got business that took him to the other end of the town for that night. "'That will tell you now,' exclaimed Mrs. Bray with interest. "'And they went and collared him,' proceeded the narrator. "'That'll tell you now, the faggot!' exclaimed Mrs. Bray again. So they took him and put him on a horse, naked except his trousers, about twenty of them did it, and rode on either side with tar-pots, and every time he'd turn his head any way to jaw about what he'd do, they'd swab him in the mouth with it, and they had bags of feathers, and nearly smothered him with them, till with the black tar sticking on every way, and all in his great beard, he would be mistook for Nebuchadnezzar. When they got him out of the town, he was let go, and they said if he showed himself in it again, worse than that would happen to him. That's what the men of my day did with a bad egg, concluded the old lady, firm in the belief of the superior virtue of her generation. What price beards in a case like that? came from Dawn. That clean-faced feller of yours would have the advantage then, said Mrs. Bray. And now I'll tell you the point of that story. It was just the men sticking up for themselves. If that had been a woman harmed by her husband, going away with some barmaid, or other of them hussies men are so fond of, there wouldn't have been nothing done to avenge her. Her heart could have broke, and if she had said anything about it, people would have sat on her. But when one of the poor darling men is hurt, it's a different thing. Mrs. Bray had yet more to tell and after another hearty laugh divulged a secret that should have pleased a government lately reduced to appointing a commission to inquire into a falling birth-rate. This, said Grandma in explanation, is a girl who used to be a milliner in Trash's store in Noonoon. One of them give herself airs things, like all these country jumpin' fools. When you go to buy a thing off of them, they look as if you wasn't fit to tie their shoelaces, and they ain't got a stitch to their back, only a few pence a week from eternal standin' on their feet till they're all give way and only fit for the hospital. I won't say, but this one was a sprightly enough young body and carried her head high, and there was a feller came to town, was staying there at Jiminy's pub for a time, and walkin' around as if Noonoon wasn't a big enough place for the likes of him to own. He talked mighty big about meat export trade, and that was the end of his glory. He married this girl that was trimmin' hats, and she thought she was doing a stroke to catch such a bug, and now she lives in that little place built bang on the road as you go into town. Larry says he often takes her some meat. He's afraid she'll starve. And you know, though he'll take you down in some ways, he's terrible good-natured in others, and that is the way with most of us. We have our good and bad points. But the poor thing! Is that what she has come to? I ain't had a family of me own not to be able to sympathise with her. "'Well, she don't deserve no sympathy. She upholds him in his pride,' said Mrs. Bray. "'Pride? His pride?' snorted Grandma. "'It's of the skunk order. He'd make use of every one because he thinks he's an English swell, 
and they wouldn't speak to them if he met them out no more than they were dogs i don't think there's a single thing he could do to save his life if there's a bit of wood to be chopped she's got to do it and yet he'd think a decent honest workin' man who was able to keep his wife and family comfortable wasn't made of as good flesh and blood as him that ain't what i call pride there's one thing if i ever fell in love with a man he'd have to be a man and not a crawler said dawn some girls think if they get a bit of a swell he's something but i wouldn't care if a man were the prince of wales and lord muck in one if he couldn't do things without muddling i'd throw water on him what about young ewood are you going to throw water on him laughed mrs bray ask carrie she knows more about him than i do dawn finds it handy to put her lovers on to me said carrie who was washing away the spilt tea and airing some uncomplimentary opinions of andrew and uncle jake between whiles why don't you come and see me carrie continued mrs bray i can't be bothered i've got my living to earn and have no time for visiting said that uncompromising young woman anything new on here dawn asked mrs bray turning to her no only miss flip's uncle is coming up by this afternoon's train and we're dying to see him there's been so much blow about him andrew is going to get out a tub to hold the tips well i'll be going now to get bray his tea or there'll be a jawin and a sulkin match between us that's the way with men if you're not always buckin around gammon and you think em somebody they get like a bear with a scalded head well come over and see me some day she said hospitably to me walk along a bit with me now and see the way to this i agreed and going to get a parasol heard the incautious woman remark behind me seems to be an old maid a gaunt-looking old party ain't got no complexion i wonder was she ever going to be married don't look as if many would be breaking their necks after her does she mrs bray posed as a champion of her sex but could not open her mouth without belittling them however i was too well seasoned in human nature to be disconcerted and walked by her side enjoying her immensely she was so delightfully transparently patronizing there are many grades of patronage that from people who ought to know better and which is always bitterly resented by any one of spirit while that of the big splodging ignoramus who doesn't know any better to any one possessed of a sense of humour is indescribably amusing mrs braze was of this order and would have been galling only to the snob whose chief characteristic is a lack of common sense lack of common sense being synonymous with snobbery you'll get on very well with old grandma she remarked she ain't such a bad old sort when you know her she must have a bit of property too of course i find her a bit narrow-minded but that's to be expected seeing i've lived a lot in the city before i come here and she's only been up the country but that carries the caution the hussy i only asked her over out of kindness being a woman with a good home as i have and did you hear her them hussies without homes ain't got no call to give themselves airs bits of things workin for their livin i'm afraid i'm in the same category as i have no home i said by way of turning her wrath oh well yes but you're different you don't have to work for your livin have you any daughters i asked i had one but she soon married like me she was snapped up as soon as she was old enough mrs bray laughed delightedly 
Here was a broad-minded Democrat who considered a woman lowered in becoming a useful working member of society, instead of remaining a toy or luxury kept by her father or some other man, and who, while loudly bawling for the emancipation of women from the yoke of men, nevertheless considered the only distinction a woman could achieve was through their favourable notice, an attitude of mind produced by moral and social codes so effectively calculated to foster immoral and untenable inconsistency. End of chapter 2